This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for this scripture from 1 Corinthians this morning, and I pray that you would uh, give us fresh understanding and bring us your hope and your joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, Andrea and I had the joy of visiting my mum in England. And while we were there, mum was sharing with us about a friend of hers who is close to death. Her friend's young grandson had come to visit his grandmother. He said to her, Granny, can I ask you a question? Are you excited about going to heaven? The boy's grandmother replied, Billy, I am. I wonder if you were asked that question, what would you say? I imagine we might not all be quite so forthright. Perhaps we'd say, well, uh, not just yet. Questions about life after death are not new, of course. The Christians at Corinth were asking them, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? The immediate response from the Apostle Paul is fool. It seems they were asking foolish questions. Certainly there are plenty of dumb questions or assumptions when it comes to life after death. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to tell children when a loved one dies that God needed them more than we do, or that a person has become an angel. These things are not Christian teachings. And for all of our education and sophistication, a lot of people today are uncomfortable talking about the end of life. Have you noticed, for example, how people avoid even using the word death? Instead, people talk of losing someone or of someone having passed. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at the questions that the Corinthian Christians were asking. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do the dead come? Paul's response suggests that there was something wrong with the questions. There was a, a category problem, a bit like how many hours are there in a mile, or is green square or round? Or, frankly, it's a bit like when Americans ask, what flavor cake would you like, yellow cake or white cake? <laughs> Since when were yellow and white flavors? I've never been able to square that circle. Anyway, C.S. Lewis once said that probably half the questions we ask, half our great theological and metaphysical problems are like that. I think our inquisitiveness sometimes gets the better of us. There are many things in the world, in life, and about God that will always remain a mystery. One of the problems is that both our words and our understanding are inadequate to deal with the realities of resurrection. But that's not to say that we have no clue 
as to what resurrection may mean for us. In the earlier part of this great chapter, chapter uh, 15 of 1 Corinthians, St. Paul has been setting out the whole case about resurrection and how important it is. And it's at the very heart and foundation of our Christian faith. And it's based on strong evidence. And that if it's not true, then we should all go home. As we affirm in the creed, our belief as Christians in resurrection is not limited to the historical resurrection of Jesus. It extends to all who believe in him. It extends to all Christian people. Well, happily, St. Paul doesn't ignore the questions. Rather, he turns to nature for an, an, an analogy. He starts off as an agriculturist and sketches in parallels from the world of botany. Our present bodies he likens to seeds, the future bodies to plants. With his example of the seed and the plant, he illustrates how two things can be the same but different. At one level, seeds and plants are entirely different. We're not likely to get them confused. And yet, there is a profound sense in which the seed and the plant are the same thing. There's a definite continuity between the seed that is sown and the plant that grows up. The seed is transformed from something small and dead to something alive and growing. And just as the seed is covered in soil when it is buried, so too, when we die, our bodies or ashes may be buried in the ground or placed in our columbarium, perhaps. Just as the seed is changed and consumed in the emerging plant, likewise our mortal bodies are consumed and changed into resurrection bodies. The perishable takes on the imperishable. The physical body is transformed into a spiritual body. And I know we have a hard time with spiritual and body being in the same uh, phrase, but there they are. The physical body is transformed into a spiritual body. It's not that the old corpse with its decaying cells and worn out muscles will be resuscitated. No, not at all. Something new happens. There is never any suggestion in the scriptures that we either have been or will be disembodied spirits, but rather spiritual persons with resurrection bodies. And we're not told the precise nature of these bodies, and it doesn't probably help us terribly to dwell on the mechanics of it all, which are clearly beyond our finite minds. But I have no doubt that you will still be you, and I will still be me. And we who are God's own people will have our places in heaven as perfected beings, both in body and soul. And this, this is what Paul is teaching as he writes in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. 
And in support of this argument, St. Paul looks back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, we read that the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground. Then, secondly, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man then became a living being. Man and woman, he created them. Paul then moves from the first Adam to the second Adam. The first Adam was a man from the earth, from the dust. And the second Adam is from heaven and is spiritual. Who is this second Adam? Well, of course, it is Jesus, the divine word made flesh. In 10 days' time, it's going to be Lent. And Lent begins with Ash Wednesday. And all are invited to come to church at noon or at seven, and amongst other things, to receive the imposition of ashes on your forehead. A black smudge, a physical, visceral reminder of our mortality. And as we make that smudge, we will say, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But that smudge is not merely a mark of ashes. It is made in the shape of a cross, a reminder that Jesus defeated the curse of death, that while we will return to dust, if we have put our faith and trust in God, that very dust will be transformed. The dust of death will meet the power of the cross. The power of the cross that defeats death, destroys the curse, does away with decay and grief and injustice and sin and shame. The cross is the means to resurrection, from dust to a glorious resurrected spiritual body for all eternity. That Hope can help you get out of bed in the morning when life feels desolate. That hope enables us to keep going even in the face of indescribable grief. And that hope reminds us that we need not despair. Paul tells us, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. We have been like Adam, we will be like Jesus. The truth that we are created in the image of God is one of the bedrock truths of our identity. And I believe it is a truth that our world desperately needs to hear. Too often, people seek to define their identity in other ways. Now, that's not surprising. We bear in our bodies the image of fallen humanity. Our human selves are intrinsically disordered, broken, and a, a shadow of what they were meant to be. And, of course, that gets expressed in all kinds of ways. Some people may define themselves by their status, their job, their sexuality, or whether they are successful or a victim. But all these things 
inadequately define our true selves, our true identity. We need to be careful as we think on these lines, lest we fall into the temptation of pointing the finger at others whose self-proclaimed identity or the identity we may assume in another meets our disapproval or receives our judgment. Let's make sure we focus first on our own identity. What is your identity? Who are you? Will you say, I identify as a man or a woman, a, a person who is single or married, divorced, widowed? Will you say, my identity is that I'm gay or straight? Will you say, I'm an athlete, I'm autistic, I'm black, I'm Asian, I'm white? Now, I know I'm mixing categories, but these descriptors of ourselves, while they may be real, they do not, indeed cannot, accurately and adequately sum up who we really are. They do not speak to our fundamental identity. Who am I? Well, in my weakness, in my mortal self, I bear the image of Adam and of all that flows from sin, rebellion, brokenness, disorder, and death. That's who I am. But that's not all. I can also say to myself when I look in the mirror, Jonathan, remember your baptism. I have been born again. I have been washed. I have been sanctified. And in St. Paul's words, verse 49, I will also bear the image of the man in heaven. Women and men, girls and boys, as Christians, this is our destiny. This is our identity. The hope of Paul's words to us then is that our broken identities are not the whole story. Our disordered selves, the image of Adam that we bear, is not the whole truth. Thanks be to God. For in Christ we also bear, now in part, one day fully, the image of Jesus. When I see the devastating brokenness in people's lives, when I consider the sinfulness and selfishness of my own life, the hope of the resurrection brings me great comfort. Resurrection, as Paul describes here, is a recreation, a transformation. This sinful, mortal, decaying, aging body that I am will be gloriously transformed into a perfect, immortal, decay-free resurrection body. Our faith and hope in resurrection for ourselves comes not from some doctrine of, of inherent mortality, immortality in a detached soul, you will not find that anywhere in Scripture, but rather from what we see in Jesus who broke the power and the bonds of death. Now, we don't know exactly how God did this, but we do know that Jesus wasn't merely resuscitated to die later. He was raised to life in a resurrection body. And our faith rests on the dependability of God. As God created the first Adam as an expression of divine love, so God sent the second Adam, Jesus, as a demonstration 
and assurance of his continuing love for us, even though the first Adam and all who followed, you, me, all of us, rebelled against God and profoundly messed things up. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so too are we promised resurrection to new and eternal life. God can be counted on for the future, even if many of the details are unknown and beyond our comprehension, because God has been dependable in the past. Moreover, our future hope is based not only on the past, but in the present. And because we can be sure of eternal life in the future, we need to live in the light of that now. You know, the point of the church is not to get everybody saved so that they can go off to heaven and just kind of skip over this life. No, God didn't create us for that. He created us for much, much more than that. He created us for life now, today, here, as well as for all eternity. We're not going to know perfection until either we die or Christ returns. But each of us is called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in the light of this resurrection hope. The hope of the resurrection is not some pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die business. It's about life on the earth now. It's rooted in what we know of God as he has revealed himself to us again and again. It is rooted in experience as we live out this new life even in the context of all the decay and rottenness of our mortal lives. As Christians, we don't simply believe in a glorious and gracious future. But with God's help, albeit falteringly, we live by his grace in the present. And if we want to catch a glimpse of that resurrection life now, if we want others to see that, then we need to live our lives the way Jesus taught us. So how do we live out this resurrection life now? As we love our enemies, as we do good to those who persecute us, as we live the radical life that we heard about in this morning's gospel reading, then we are living the life of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And of course, that's what Jesus came to do. The kingdom of heaven is near. He brought it. He demonstrated it. We live surrounded by death. We live in a world that is marked by grief, disappointment, unfairness, sickness, and injustice. And yet, we live not as those without hope. For we have this hope of resurrection, of all things being made new. And we sinful, mortal, finite creatures who in Christ are also forgiven, redeemed, immortal beings are to shine in the darkness. As St. Paul tells us um, in his second letter to the Corinthians, we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and doesn't come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. This is how we can live out the charge Jesus gives in our gospel reading today to love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. The truth is, death does not have the last word. Death is not victorious. Does death still sting? Well, of course it does. It hurts more than words can possibly say. As Christians, we don't ignore grief and sorrow. We don't paper over death. Our hearts may break, but our hope in the resurrection means we are not crushed. Do you have this hope? In the face of sin and death and failure, through our tears and in our grief, we have the audacity to claim Paul's words at the end of this chapter for ourselves. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The little boy's question that we began with, Granny, are you excited about going to heaven? shows at least that he was not afraid to talk about death. And her answer reveals something of her resurrection hope. If you were to ask me, Jonathan, are you excited about the resurrection? I will say unequivocally, yes. What about you? Amen.